0: If you're a military veteran and want to learn more about the innovation ecosystem and how to participate in it as an investor, employee, or entrepreneur, then you've come to the right place. Welcome to Those Who Dare, where we amplify the voices of military veterans who consistently step outside their comfort zone and go above and beyond society's expectations. This series is brought to you by the team at AIN Ventures, a seed-stage venture fund founded by Service Academy graduates. I'm Iron Mike Steadman, co-host of Those Who Dare, along with Sherman Williams, managing partner at AIN, as well as Emily McMahon. So uh, today we have Mr. Sam Ellis. Sam, it's a pleasure to have you on the platform.
1: Iron Mike, great to be here, man.
0: (laughs) Um, How about we
2: kick it off with, um, I just did this for the first time not too long ago. They call it a radically human introduction. So uh, we want to do that with you, Sam. Maybe where you're from, nickname growing up, sport growing up, uh, you know all the all the intricate details you don't typically give in, in the standard corporate setting for intro.
1: Yeah, I'm happy to do that. I love that. So it's it's funny you mentioned the the nickname. I'm just gonna I'm gonna jump right to that and then backfill some around the the background. So I think one, I haven't been really I've, I've given a ton of nicknames in life, but I haven't really received a ton. I had one little league baseball team where my dad was an assistant coach, more of like a hype man than a coach. He didn't know anything really about baseball, but like he was like he's the guy's here to win, so he, he showed up and just be the hype man. And he gave every he gave everyone a nickname, uh, and he gave me this this nickname Stump because I was a little bit small. And there was this show, I think it was like it, it was or they had this like inanimate object that they personified as a stump and it was like this is a stick and it was like a really like silly cartoon and I think it was a, it was just like a really fun origination of like leaderships and seeing culture building I think that was one thing where, I don't know my, my dad was always like a team captain type figure on like track teams growing up and and so for for me sports was like a huge part of growing up uh so just like the sports and the intensity around it uh, I think once I kind of got or got past the you know the initial like hey everyone plays like little league football and little league baseball and and really like locked into more competitive advantage like in you know endurance sports and wrestling uh then it was like a lot more intense uh and i think for for better or for worse you know you I know mean, my my dad's is is someone who grew up you know he grew up in like detroit detroit uh and you know it's where you know a lot of i think there's a lot of people in his his graduating class from high school, you know, which is now defunct, or they didn't really make it out. And a big way he made it out was through sports. So it's like that for him. And I, I imagine this probably resonates with you a, a great deal. Mike is like, is like, that was his vehicle for, for uplift. And, and that was his vehicle to put, it was just, it was a clear path to putting discipline into an outcome, right? Is a clear path to being able to put intensity and progress and just, like the yearningness to like not want to deal with what's in front of you and what's coming at you and like to do something different. Right. Like that was, that was his manifestation. So like the one thing, and that was rule in my Like you had to play sports, like you had to play sports and you had to be here to win. Like that was, you know that was like a, that, cause that was like how my, you know, that was how he kind of found his path of success. And that was how he, you know, it wasn't there, there weren't a ton of lessons in like business for me or I didn't, you know I, all these all these terms of like about investing in private equity eventually i didn't know i never heard of any of these but like I, you know the one thing i don't know i don't i can't say i was particularly blessed with like the you know knowledge or economic side of thing but the principles right the principles kind of balance of my mom being very nurturing my dad being on the much more i would say like intense and and, and here to win work ethic side yeah, I think it was it was a good balance, and those are those were really great blessings, right? Those were great gifts uh, at, at a very fundamental level. Um, so I think that get, that gives a kind of like a very raw raw background of like my parents and my dad is very different, very like asymmetric thinker, super different dude, but very intense. Um, so you know, I think uh, going to Going to West Point, where it was like a similar focus on, on sports and school and leadership, you know, that was kind of the, the part of the fabric of of growing up. Um, so de- definitely kind of a natural, natural slide there.
0: Well, the- before we hit record, I was making fun of Sam because I was like, he's cooler than me. You know, I got Iron Mike on LinkedIn and Sam's got the backward cap. He's got venture capitalists yeah. on there. You know, you've got that experience, all those portfolios you've invested in and led. I'm just like, oh my gosh, you know. So I'm, fi- we're fired up to have you on here today. And I just want to say, and I'm curious to know if y'all feel it too. I feel like such positive energy in the entrepreneurial ecosystem. Does anybody else feel it? Like, totally. I do. Everything
2: is optimistic and and sunny because people are striving to do great things. Um, so it's definitely different than other financial ecosystems I've been in. Totally. Uh, radically different, actually. Yeah.
1: Totally. Yeah. You have to be an optimist as an entrepreneur. Yeah. You have to be. It's it's so like it's so hard, and there's so much that like naturally wants you to just fail and you want you to stop working on the company you're working on. You have to be an optimist, and I think as an investor, you probably have to appreciate that to a lot of extent, right? That like energy. So I think you're totally right. Mike. It's I, great. I think
2: as a founder, you have to be optimistic, but as a venture capital venture capitalist, I think a, a great one will be uh, eternally optimistic. You have to. You can't think yeah. about. Jason Calacanis says. When he looks at a company, he doesn't think about what could go wrong. He thinks about what can go right. If this yeah. thing, if this idea succeeds, if this is the founder to carry the idea to fruition. Right. Totally. So yeah. um, you start to dream from there. So, yeah. yeah. That's actually
1: a fun, that's a, uh, that's a super fundamental framework shift around risk, I think. Right. I think you have to have uh, as a venture investor, right? It's this idea, and, and I think we can maybe dive into this stuff a little bit later, too, because I think it's mm-hmm. really, really fundamental to, to human psychology and how it relates to investing and risk, is that, you know, humans are wired to think about what could go wrong, because mm-hmm. it kept us alive, right? Like, from a ver- from every, like, evolutionary, like, lens, right? Like, if you look at the earliest humans and what made them survive, it's, like, what made them survive is the ones that didn't die, right? It's the ones that, like, didn't eat the bad berries, and, like, the ones that didn't, like, put their hands in the fire, and it's, like, so they, so you have to be hypersensitive to like negative things and things going wrong. So like, unfortunately, like a part of the human condition is that like, we're, we're like trained to be negative. Like we're trained to be hypersensitive to negative things and trained to be hypersensitive to risk because like, that's what keeps you alive. Right. So, so yeah. I think, as, you know, so I think to be, to be an effective investor at some point you have to like be a much more realistic and first principles thinker about how you naturally view risk as a human and like what shackles you have of the human condition that are on you right and like try to take those off and like and look at like risk like Jason right and who's like okay well what are the what are the things that can
0: that can potentially go right here i think that's like a really interesting point mm-hmm. emily you've been in the ecosystem longer than any of us has this energy, has this energy always been here or do you think this is something new like i just see opportunity everywhere yeah. you know even when i go back to my, my hometown i'm like yeah. oh I could probably just be that dude, you know?
2: I'm interested to know that too, Emily, because you, you came
0: out of the army
2: yeah. and worked to half acre. So like, how did that, yes. I mean, would you not like, uh, let me just go to business school and be a consultant or?
3: So I would say from my perspective, which is again, just one perspective in one part of the country, I will say that it's probably been I think like since 2012, 2013, I feel like things have made kind of a big shift and I will credit that maybe I could correlate that to a lot of like the lean startup movement on just a little bit more of that literature and framework and some of that work that's been done by a lot of folks. But I just want to take it back. I first remember the time I first met Sam when he um, came into my office and I will say just on the note of like, positive nature. I mean I just remember being like who the heck was that and like who just came through my office like Sam has just such a presence and I think is such a leader not only for the work you've done um, at, you know we can go into that here shortly but I, I think you'll note Sam is not only um, a leader in this current movement but has just has such a, f- a phenomenal career to date um, even going back to West Point so maybe we could get into that. Mike, if that works.
0: Yes, please. Oh, so yeah. fun! Like, <laughs> no, like, I think you, you
1: were you were literally one of my first touch points in my it's, entrepreneurial it's, journey, right? So that that wasn't well, we get getting that, but I was like, well, when I was in the army, researching yeah. like capital Post and Bunker Labs, like trying to kind of figure stuff out. I
3: wish I could go back to that moment as I was at my desk typing an email and I was like, what just happened? You know, so I I definitely that's a meeting I definitely remember. You know, oh, chance encounter. So but yeah,
0: so yeah. Yes, Sam, please bring us up to speed. Yeah. How did you get into Startups and venture in the first place.
1: Yeah, for sure. So, so I kind of, I think I kind of left things off at at going to West Point. It was a super natural fit. Uh, I ended up, I ended up being really into academia and taking some time and, and really working on some research and some scholarship applications that ended up having one workout or one or two workout and allowed me to go to grad school right after. Sam, can so, you, can I interrupt yeah. you?
3: Can you talk about that? Because I feel yeah. like as, as a, a West Point graduate and even just like an officer in general, you had, you had such a non-traditional, um, path, even post West Point. So would you mind even kind of going even back there? Cause I think that's, I, I'm always so enthralled to hear that story. So,
1: yeah, totally, totally. Uh, so, you know, I think there, I think it's, at some point there at, at some point west point got really good about building a culture around cultivating a, a, a group of people that are, have a good probability of getting a nationally competitive scholarship or fellowship mm-hmm. and and i think digging in and giving them the resources and support they needed to have a really good shot applying right which i think is a it's a very i mean from an institutional perspective i think it's a very crappy strategic move because like I mean, what better, what better marketing is there than like a university just racking up like Rhodes, Marshall, Gates, Truman, NSF, Hertz, Scholar, you know, like those, I mean, these are really nationally competitive fellowships and scholarships. And like you look at West Point, you look at even like the Naval Academy, and like, oh, we absolutely rip per capita at these scholarships, right? And it's like, I'm really proud of, I'm really proud of our institutions uh and for for grooming people and doing a good job, I think even even with, at the education layer, right? Because like, and I think I think this is one of my my big themes in terms of kind of think like, balancing like, you know balancing out uh, human economic empowerment. It's just like it's access to knowledge, right? Like if you don't know if you don't ever know that that Rhodes is a thing or Marshall's a thing or National Science Foundation fellowships a thing. Like and you don't know you need to start working on your application like two years out and you should be working on your essays like mm. iteration after iteration mm. like yeah I mean you and so you know I think there's there's a, you know a, a lot of credit that goes to the school and um, that, I think that's kind of like the the background there so it was it like, kind of in that you know in that pipeline um, worked worked super hard on on the applications um, and was really fortunate that that something worked out and I was able to yeah. able to take a take a crack at grad school right after
2: yeah. Can you talk about your time at West Point? Um, yeah. yeah. You coming in, um, West Point as an African-American, what that experience was like. Yeah. And then kind of just branched that to you being African-American and moving into entrepreneurship. Uh, or And maybe what kind of prepared you at West Point to totally. kind of go down that path?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, it's it's interesting. I think everyone has a tough time adjusting <clears throat> to something at West Point. Like no one gets through clean. No one gets through any kind of like even military service, like whether it's like military service or West Point, or like you are going to find something that really challenges you. Uh, Plebe year was admittedly super tough for me, uh, just like adjusting to I don't know adjusting to kind of like the the military culture side of things. Uh, that was it was just like is very different for me and very tough, uh, and it took me a while. That actually really hampered my my ability to produce academically, and I would even it would even say physically. Um, but it's, so it took me about a year to just like, adjust. like, I really needed a year to like adjust and like, and I think that goes into, I mean, look, I, I, I would be, I'd be be remiss not to mention that, you know, I had a section of life where my parents did send me to a really good school. And, you know, I think there is a part of the back, a background that's helpful, but you know, at, at the same time, really good high school. Yeah. And going to a really really good high school. school. Um, and you know, I think really good's relative, but you know, I at least was, I was around, I think, you know, one thing my, like my dad understood, and again, I, I mentioned like, you know not necessarily a ton of lessons in like business or in academics or like you're, you're being studious, but like a lot of good dis- lessons and like, okay, hey, well, so, you know, if someone's doing something that's working, like learn from them. And also always remember that, you know, you can't, you can't hope to be the best or you can't hope to be at the top unless you do something different and you're working harder. Right. So like, I, t- so I took kind of, pl- I took a lot of plebe as a reflection and was like, okay, well, like I know, I, I know I can do a little bit better. Like, how do I, how do I just adjust like be a better time manager, understand requirements more, understand how to like study, use resources more. Um, that's the, I think that's the one of the most beautiful things about the service academy to me is that like it levels the playing field. Like everyone has access to the same resources and like, you know to you know there's no one who's behind the scenes that's like work an extra job to cover tuition, or there's no one that has to like that. Tending that's why it's such a good like beacon and and passion for diversity is because it's like you know everyone can show up and it's like, man, you have the resources, like, there are your peers you see are working hard, there are you know, like all the, all the examples are in front of you, like good leadership examples, good academic examples. Like, if you want to put the work in, that's the cool thing about it, right? Is it's like a, it's a well and playing field, if you want to put the work in, I think you can find a path and like. That was a big thing for me after plebe year. was like, oh, like oh, okay. Well, I kind of had to figure out, well, I got to actually apply work ethic into like producing something. And so, um, yeah, that, I think that that was like a governing thought for me for the rest of my time at West Point. Was like, it's not like I didn't do bad. I didn't do bad plebe year, right? But like, I don't know when I'm like when I'm really shooting to win, it's like ah, I didn't do great. Um, so I think you know I really adjusted and just doubled down. I think on on the work ethic too, uh, and you know, I think I was kind of, I was a little bit more of like an introverted cadet. I spent a lot of time in the library. I spent a lot of time in the library, especially post-freshman year. Um, But no, so that was, I think that was me. I was very into fitness. Uh, I'm not like too different, I guess. (laughs) uh, Did you
3: feel like you belonged there? Did you ever feel you did? So that's great. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, I think,
1: again, I had a really tough transition plebe year, just like, I mean, it's a different. I don't. I, I don't know how you guys experience experienced there are Probably some some degree of similarity of like, everyone adjusts to something things differently. But once I got past that, mm-hmm. yeah, I, you know, felt 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 like I was I was a pretty pretty good fit.
0: Mm-hmm. What did you select once you uh, graduated? What branch?
1: Uh, so I was a military intelligence officer. Uh, it's. I think. I think for me, it seemed it seemed like the most like analytical and the best fit. Uh, there was no cyber branch yet. Um, Signal, I think, was a consideration for me. Finance was a consideration for me, uh, but I don't know. Mi also had like a little bit of like swag to it. I would say during my time, like it's funny the ebbs and flows. Like I guess ADA is is a cool branch now, and like what's ADA? Favorite Defense Artillery. Really interesting. Yeah, yeah there's definitely like artillery. a brand with every branch. Yeah. That and cyber, like those are the hot. Those are like hot the cool branches. branches. Like, I love it. Yeah. Yeah, it's so funny though. But yeah, I mean, what, during my time, like Mi was reasonably hot. Uh, so I don't know. I, that's funny. My thinking, like, as a cadet, like a, I, I was, like, probably a reasonably sophisticated choice, but not great.
3: Well, some <laughs> people struggle with that, who they are versus who they're supposed to be. And so I've heard that's some cool. people that struggle, like, you know, I ended up branching, said branch because I thought I was supposed to be that, but I'm actually more, mm-hmm. right? And you hear some people with, like, branch detailing, and that gets in the way. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. but you guys can lat
2: transfer, right? Like, we can in the Navy you guys can transfer from one branch to another eventually, or is it pretty tough?
3: Um, I think with the combat arms branches, and again, I don't know if this is the same way, but you would hear people who would kind of branch MI and then um, branch detail to say infantry. So they start off in like one of the main combat arms and then um, go back at a certain point. And again, I don't know if it's the same way, Sam, but you hear hear some of that sometimes, yeah.
0: So how did you go from being a military (laughs) intelligence officer to, in Emily's office at Capitol <laughs> Post.
1: Sure. No, I think that, I think that's a great question. So, <laughs> you know, so again, again, I had I had a small departure from I would say traditional path, and that I spent about a year in grad school first. Um, so that was a, a master's in route to a PhD. Uh, ended up leaving the PhD totally wasn't for me. I wanted to get back, focus on something practical. And and I think I left. Look at that that moment, like leaving the PhD program was like. It was it was one of the first times, thing ever, that I like consciously quit something, like you know. Mm. And, and now, now I say, I mean, I'm like a proud PhD dropout. Uh, and there's a couple other people I met that are, that are PhD dropouts, and that's always like ah, uh, wow. my kind of person, you know, because it's like it's always similar stories. Um, but you know, I had to really. And you ask how I got into entrepreneurship, and this is a really, this is a really important piece of the story. I actually, I actually don't know that I tell this piece, but I'll, I'll I'll take a little bit of time to to cover it. I remember I remember spending time after deciding to, to leave grad school that I was just like sitting on the floor, like figuring out like what, I, I mean, for so long, I was like, Oh, I'm going to be an academic. And then, and then all of a sudden, like that identity felt like it disassociated. And, you know, I was, I was left in this, you know, kind of like state of on And I was like, okay, well, what am I actually, I'm actually going to lock into here. Uh, and, you know, for me, I, I took a step back and really wanted to think through how to leverage, technical aptitude and work ethic in order to create kind of max amount of impact and you know i think i think it's again this it goes back to this lesson from my dad of like just like hey put yourself around people or like look at people who are finding success and like you know you don't have to reinvent the real but like you've got to do something different you have to work hard so so for me i i I looked at i was like okay well where's a lot of like economic impact getting generated right and it's like you know, kind of comes comes down to the, these industries that are very scalable and like software companies and software startups. All of a sudden, became very interesting to me. Um, this was this was probably two thousand like 13, 14, Like as we mentioned earlier, when like a lot of this entrepreneurial energy was like really picking up momentum, right? Like you you had I think kind of the popularization and romanticism of startups and that, and and that was like you know I had some powerful tailwinds around that, and so all of a sudden I began focusing on. Finding a path to to being a founder, and finding a path that and finding that path that linked things that I had done to things that I wanted to do. Right. So how can I build on my skill set of like being able to learn technical things well and being in just like kind of scrappy hard worker? Uh, and how can I lean into that and like find find that linkage? And so I think being you know trying to set up to be you know, like a technical co-founder or someone who's very early and a builder, right? That seemed to be the best path, right? So again, I mean, if you look at, if you look at like a, you know, if you look at a business, it's like early stage, like what do you, you know, the, the business very fundamentally, like you're either either buying or sorry, you're, you're like selling a good or service or you're really, cr- you're really creating product or service, right? And so you you have to like ideally be good at like the sales and marketing or figure out how to build product. That That's kind of how I look at it. You know, like, so I think very, there's
2: a very zero one one. Yeah, I think right? so. Yeah, yeah way, I right? think
1: that, I think that, so, that is, that, I mean, I am a zero one person, so that isn't the way how I feel to view the world. Um, so, you know, I was like, okay, well, I want to double down and be a builder. Like, I want to be a like, product builder. And it's like, I, man, I think people really underestimate how hard it is being like a full stack solo product builder, like someone who can like really do all the stuff for all the technical things for a startup and software company. It's like, you know we we're just with one of our incubation companies we we're just going through this other day like even the nuances and madness that is like like dns and like subdomains and like routing and like email record like all this stuff like these things aren't trivial right it takes time it just takes it takes reps and time and projects so like my thing was like okay i need to start doing as much as i can of this hopefully at, at work which is you know really how i how i was able to align some of my competitive advantages with my time in the army uh is you know, I had started a base of of doing these projects, of doing like, you know, like building a server, working on software projects, trying to like, you know, collaborate and commit to open source occasionally. Um, so just anything, anything to kind of sharpen the tools that I knew would take a long time to sharpen uh, in order to get to the point where you can even where you can even hope to build a product all on your own, right? Like it's a lot to get there, you know. And I, won't, you know I, don't know, I feel like I was kind of barely prepared at the time I was there um, at your first startup. At, I'd say, uh, you know, I'd, I'd say at the first time as a, as a founder, I mean, the biggest, you know, so quick, quickly, time, you know, time in the military was was mostly centered around a special access program on a cyber command. Um, so it's kind of a mix of data engineering and some, um, you know, some kind of like, you know, information packaging type work into the intersection of the kind of intelligence and cyber really. Um so uh, after wrapping up some time there again, you know, the, the North Star really for me was to was to you know get to being a technical co-founder of a company. Uh I and wanna so, I want to
0: take a pause right there. Can you explain yeah. to our listeners what you mean by technical co-founder?
1: Yeah, for sure. So, you know, I think if you're if you're you know kind of looking against the backdrop of like starting a SaaS or software company or even any kind of technology company, right? You you know you need, you ideally need someone to build a product on the co-founding team right like like really great co-founding teams like they have the they have the ability to make all the strategic and executionary moves within the product within the within the core co-founding team right so you know you you, you kind of you might have like your business sales marketing type person and then you know really need people to work on working on product right it's um, so maybe someone like design, product, market, product, organize, and then build, right? So, technical co-founder like they do those things, right? They they help bring the vision into product requirements, and then actually bring that to life. Um, and that could look like you know, in a in a hardware in a hardware company, a technical co-founder, you know, like one of the scout incubation companies right now that's doing basically a counterfeit chip detection. You know, like man, that that founder needs a, a tremendous amount of range, like a technical co-founder. Right. To bring, you know, to basically bring the intersection of like hardware and computer vision and software all together. Right. So like it's it's usually it's usually like a very weird amalgam of skills that it takes to like be be a standalone kind of product engine. Right. I would say as a a technical co founder,
0: does that technical co-founder usually come in before? you know, product is getting built or is it after they've already kind of come up with the business idea and they're like, Hey, we need somebody to actually help us build this. And then they go out and recruit a technical co-founder.
1: Ideally, they're there from the jump, you know, ideally they're there from the jump, but that's like not a, you know, that's again, ideally, and that's, you know, the world's not ideal. So in a lot of cases, you know, you, you see founders who are hustling with like prototypes that are designed or hustling with things. And there's like, Hey, you know, I'm like a, I'm like a lost soul looking for someone to build right? Like that's, the, that's such a common story. And so, yeah, I mean, that's I uh, I don't know. I think there, there's a, there's a whole array of strategy that kind of goes into, Hey, if I'm a non-technical founder, how, do, how, and when do I link up with the technical co-founder? I think the, the most important thing to remember, and this is, I think such a fundamental piece in, in business is that like, you know, usually, usually it comes from relationships, right? It's like, you know, you can't, you know, you, you can't forget that most most people who have the ability to be kind of a sole product engine, right? Kind of like a product building diesel, right? Man, those people will probably do anything. They probably do whatever they want, right? Yeah. So you can't forget that. So you have so 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 your 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 leverage is hopefully you have competitive advantage in the space you're working in. You have a relationship with the person, right? That's kind of you know. And and so if you're thinking about the timing of that, right? And like you're someone who's like, all right, well, I have. I want to start a company in, in a year and you don't have a technical co-founder yet, then it's like, okay, well you better, you better really hit the jets on, on kind of the relationship piece of things.
2: So and it's really cool. There's a lot of um, accelerated programs and programs designed to help non technical mm-hmm. people find technical co-founders. Yeah. But I, I've seen a lot of startups uh, that suffered, they were delayed uh, or just completely fell apart because the founding team didn't work out. Got it. Right. right. So yeah, it's really, really important to find that person.
0: Yeah. I'm familiar with technical co-founder. I just want to make sure we get some young people that are interested in the space. We start throwing terms around, you know, they start going on Google. What's a technical co-founder? Totally, (laughs) Absolutely. So So so
2: how did did the the experiences, did you, well, first let me ask you a tactical question. Did Mm -hmm. you learn how to code while at either at West Point and or in the army, or did you really learn how to code after? Army.
1: yeah so it, this is an interesting question i i learned i would say like math coding in undergrad right so i don't i wouldn't say that's application development right there's a there's a, there's like a lot of nuance in this right when people say like learn to code like there's actually a lot to unpack there right like there are some people that like can code for the purposes of academia and like that was kind of where i was started off i started off in that little silo right where like you know, a lot of the stuff I was doing was like maybe coding a simu- like a security event simulation, or maybe I was like R. or even yeah, maybe I was doing some R. I was actually doing some symbolic work as well. So much more math heavy, right? So so like you know, coding, you know, basic like probability distributions and doing convolutions or kind of combinations of those and doing that, you know. It, so that's like that's a different mode of thought. Um, and then and then what did I learn? I think I think probably the question behind the question is like, you know, how do you learn the fundamentals and learn and develop applications. Um, I think I'm, you know, in, in, in grad school, I went on to develop like fairly sophisticated, like object oriented discrete event simulations and optimization models. So like definitely d- like got decent at programming, but that's, that's quite a big difference from, I would say, application development. Application development is its own animal, right? So like you have a lot of people that, who, that graduate with computer science degrees and like they can code like they might be cold at coding, but like, they might not be able to develop applications. That's its own set of nuances, right? And, like, the only way to do that is you just have to get to do it. Get to yeah. build. Get to build. You know? Yeah. So, like, yeah, it's night, like nights and weekends, like, you're building. It's so like when you want to get good signal on an engineer or someone who's, like, technical, it like, there's no way that you can formally or at work learn everything you need to know for the job. Yeah. yeah. No way. Not even close. So, like, to understand if someone's really legit, like, It's like, man, what are these people working on in their free or where are they working? I don't want to say free time because that's like that's a that's a constraining and limiting concept. Um, But what are people doing in terms of like ancillary and extra projects? Right. Like what are what are they doing to kind of grow and learn? um, And the the best people are people are stacking skills or working on projects. They love it. Yeah. You know, they love the game.
0: (laughs) Yeah. What it sounds like, though, is you came into the ecosystem the hard way. You know, it's not easy to get on there and practice code and get your hands dirty. And, you know, but that's your personality, too. And I think it's tying into just kind of like your upbringing and your background at West Point. So you were, uh, I mean, uncommon human. That's what I'm gonna call you. You're an uncommon human to get in there. So you get brought on this team as a technical co-founder. You're hooking and jabbing. You're building product. And then talk to us about the success you achieved with this first startup.
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, so I think, you know, look, I'll be, I'll be honest. I think that probably the most most important or highest signal decision I had towards success was like really picking good co-founders and picking a space where we had more execution risk than market risk where like hustlingly paid off. Right. Um, so I mean, really really quickly, what I mean by that is like, you know, Online ordering or adding additional convenience to a large group of users and opening up additional digital surface area for revenue for for some consumer or for some businesses, which is dispensaries in our case like that's a very clear path of value and it's not necessarily novel, right so there's no there's not as much market risk right there's not as much inherent risk of like, like if you can if you can bring people's menus online and give them more orders and like charge them for that like everybody wins it's smooth like it's good clean business you know and like that model's been done in, in a variety of other settings so, You know, I think when you have a company that's much more execution risk heavy, like, and this is, this is where I think veterans come into play in a really interesting way is like ability to show up and like execute and grind and like be like a ruthless operator. Right. Like, you know, that's why, you know, I look at a a company, you know, someone like, like a Brian Elliott from, from Wove, right. Like that guy is, you know, airborne ranger, high-speed veteran, like, amazing ruthless operator executor right like that that to me is like a great example of a, a veteran entrepreneur and like why i think a lot of those inherent skill traits skill traits help on certain kind of companies and it's, i think for other veteran vcs it's like i think kind of an helpful lens to look through is like what kind of risk is this person eating um is like are they eating execution risk or market risk and so i think mean, we were largely eating executionary risk uh and so like hustle pays off there right and so um yeah i mean all of the the all the founding team Duchy's like, culture at its core like people are hustling you know like at the core people are hustling scraping <laughs> can you back up and
2: just tell us about dutchy what's the current what's the most yeah. recent valuation on the company you know what what wrote you know, everyone knows you came in as a technical co-founder so just kind of give us the overlay
1: yeah for sure so yeah i mean as i kind of alluded to the company does uh online ordering e-commerce now several more several so, several so, so, uh, more verticals and kind of the cannabis related e-commerce stack, but really has origins in in figuring out how to, how to bring dispensaries menus online. And again, give them additional kind of digital surface area for revenue. So, I mean, that's, that's a huge theme. I think that's, that's a huge value creation themes like, you know bringing people online and adding additional service area to transact business right so that's that's it at its core that's like you know that comes with all kinds of interesting regulatory hoops with a very nascent and kind of like wild westy type cannabis culture and, and market so you know this is kind of 2017 2018 um you know quick super quick like ontogeny of the company Um, you know, started around then raised $3 million seed round, um, finally went from being just like kind of the solo warrior to being able to bring people, bring, bring an engineering team on, um, you know, that core group of people that kind of brought on rock stars really leads the company now. Um, you know, company raised a $15 million series a left right around then went on to raise subsequent rounds. Most recently, um, $350 million series D which was kind of led to, to spur more acquisitions and growth again, into kind of some of the other, other verticals and be able to add bolt on more of this kind of like land and expand revenue in the, in the dispensary ecosystem. So think kind of like, you know, insurance products, fintech products. Um, so really anything that touches cannabis e-commerce and transactions and anything that touches kind of like the gross merchandise value flow through the, the dispensary ecosystem. Um, that's really where Dutchie owns. And I'd say is the technology leader for the U S and Canada, um, And so, yeah, I mean, it's like tremendous experience. I think, you know, for me, this is a, it's a, it's a fantastic foundational experience, but like, you know, I I use that word pretty, pretty intentionally. I was like, you know, I was very young as an entrepreneur, right? Like I, I think I, you know, I I look at myself as, you know, most as, as like equal parts kind of executor and early leader and culture builder, but like, you know, you know, comparison to now and kind of the way I view the lens and business and how companies are made, I didn't know that much. You know, like I really didn't. I, I didn't mean, you were only I a few want. years out
2: of
0: the army when you started Dutchy. right? How right. many
2: years were you out of the army?
1: Probably like a year or two. Wow. Yeah.
2: Yeah. yeah,
0: yeah. But he. Ta- you mentioned something early on, though, about how there was, really was this market need, you know, that like yeah. whoever yeah. figures yeah. that out, right, is going to be printing money, you know, whether yeah, it's yeah. Dutchy or whether it's somebody else. And right. I think that's important for uh, entrepreneurs and investors to be aware of, like, is there a market need? Is there a demand there? You know, because a lot of times we try to force these needs on the marketplace. But like you said, you're like, it was still a hustle, but the demand was there. That's right.
1: Yeah. Yep. Most execution
0: risk. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Um, so what made you leave? So, you know, a lot of us think, oh, you start a startup. Don't you want to stay there and go to the billion dollar exit? And you decided to to step away.
1: Yeah. I think for me, it's, uh, you know, I mean, the, I think the opportunity really of, really was evolving, right? So, I mean, it was clear that there was plenty of room to run. There's plenty of capital for the business. So it was kind of a clear path to scaling. Um, and, you know, I think for me, there's plenty of other exciting industries and there's plenty of other energizing zero to one opportunities that I'd like to do a little bit more horizontal scale. And that's kind of my, my lens, right? So, you know, how can I continue to have, you know, continue to have a successful career as kind of an early stage software person? And really be able to, to, to like dig in and and build more of that competitive advantage. Right. It's like, you know, for, for me, I think a lot of, a lot of people forget how, how much roles change as as a startup evolves. Yeah. Yeah. Like it, it takes really, really, really special people to be able to do the entire thing from zero to huge exit. Yeah, it's a, it takes a tremendous amount of range and discipline and patience and the ability to grow in different ways and network and support system, right? Like these guys, you know, like guys like like Ross and Zach and Chris is CTO, and you know, look like at a guy like even like Taylor Justice who runs Unite us, like these people that like you know that's uh, they're tr- tr- tremendously flexible gladiators, right? Like really special people, and so you know for me, I know if I would like tr- you know draw a quick quick sports analogy, right? Like you know, if, if someone wants to get really good at, at being a point guard, right? Like they're going to tend to be a point guard, right? They're not going to like switch to be, you know, switch to the post, right? And so like, that's kind of how it feels when, it, when a company grows. It's like all of a sudden, you know, you're at, you know, 30, 40 employees and it's like your job radically changes. You're at 300 employees, your job radically changes.
0: Yeah, you're right? dealing and with HR, you're dealing with all this. Yeah, exactly. Like I just want to yeah. build product. I want to study yeah, markets. Exactly. I want to build culture.
1: Exactly. Exactly. That's exactly right. Iron Mike. Yeah.
2: I think, I think that's so radically honest with yourself to say, Hey, this is what I want to be really good at. And you were, you were benefited by the fact that you had some very early success relatively, right? Well, not even relatively, objectively, you had wildly early success. And so you were benefited by that, but you could say, Hey, I'm good from a capital situation. I'm okay. I can walk away and go focus on what I really want to go focus on. Some people do jobs because they have to. Right. Right. And you were in a beautiful position where you're only doing what you want to do. Right. And and a lot of humans don't get that choice. Blessings. Yeah. Big blessings. blessings. Absolutely.
0: So what gave you the confidence to go from, you know, building product to now stepping into the roles of being a venture capitalist?
1: Yeah, for sure. So, you know, I think, I think it's a really interesting Cycle and the way, kind of like capital and leverage moves, and how that moves and with you, and how you evolve as a as a, as a person. Um, you know, I think there's there's a lot there's you know there's a lot of leverage in the cerebral nature of venture investing. I would say, right, and being and being investment manager in general. Um, so I think as as I look at the trajectory of my career. I think I'll always be involved in building to some extent, but, uh, you know, I, I, I'm inherently focused on, on scalability and I would say trying to stay like small team and cerebral. Right. Um, and that, I, that I think like venture is a really good place to do that. Right. And, you know, I can't, I think, broadly looking over the next couple of decades probably will, you know, expand the strategy a little bit more, probably move more towards an, an RIA like, like many have, but I think building and venture will always be kind of a, a core focus and um, it's what, you know, it's what energizes me. And, and I think it's, it's kind of like the way I can create the most value in the world. Um, and yeah, I think it's been, it's been a really, yeah, it's been a really interesting journey kind of adjusting to the investor seat in the last couple of years and, I mean, it takes a long time. It takes a long time to as industry. It takes some time, you know. That was my thing. Is this, this like I just got to go? I just got to start because, like, everything you know, everything's like like time and track record and results. Like that's uh, you know that's the biggest thing I think people for, forget or you don't realize about venture is it's like it takes a really, it takes a really long time to how to develop the right intuition and look at outcomes and um, so yeah. just into that, that?
2: What ultimate impact do you? Seek to have like you're building, but building toward what yeah. is like my
1: yeah, for my sure. Question. So,
2: like, you know, 25 30 years from now, you know, yeah, still young Sam is like, I'm glad I did this. This is the difference I made,
1: yeah, totally. So, you know, in, in 20 years from now, I would, I would love to look back and and be able to have be really honest with myself about me doing everything I can to, to I think enable empowerment and upward mobility for as many humans as possible that want, that want that. Right. Like, I think that's the, that for me, the the boogeyman that keeps me up at night is like, man, all the humans that like really want to try and work hard and they're willing to work hard. And, and because of the, you know, because of the unfortunate circumstance that they were born into, that they, they they lack the knowledge and resources, right? And like like there's eno- there's plenty for everyone. There's enough, there's enough blessings for everyone, right? And I think for for me, you know, being a being a venture capitalist and figuring out, you know, getting better at raising larger buckets of institutional capital and, and putting that to work in responsible and thoughtful ways, um, and looking at you know being able to look long term like really being proactive about supporting supporting large scale economic empowerment looking at emerging markets you know building fintech and infrastructure companies that you know that are you know kind of like thoughtful double bottom line type type things I, I i think i think a lot about that stuff and i really hope to be to be successful at really cultivating talent ripping down knowledge barriers and and kind of doing that through through you know being being able to be any kind of being close to the allocation funnel and pipeline. Um, and, you know, I heard, I heard a really great quote from, from, from someone I talked to who's hopefully getting ready to join our, one of our incubation companies, uh, you know, she mentioned that, that, you know, venture capitalists really, they they set the pace for culture and and ideology and research and development and like kind of manifestation, right. It's like, You're investing and backing in the earliest things and trends, right? Like, like you get a say in that, right? I think that's one of the most attractive parts about venture to me, and and why I think why I care about really trying to double down and 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 be great at it is like, you know, there's a it's not lost on me it's not lost on me how much responsibility and how much of a blessing it is to be in the seat, right? And like, you know, uh, it's it's a big part of what inspires me and drives me to. You know, to, to make the capital count in, in multiple ways, right? Like that's that's the goal. You know, we're we're really we're really driving for outsized returns, but like we want to do it in a thoughtful way that you know helps reduce things like like authoritarian rule on people and helps helps improve access to people's access to like economic infrastructure and like improves people's ability to to be more inspired and well resourced micro entrepreneurs, right? I think all of these things are on my radar for kind of 15, 20 years and um, focus on them, manifest a lot there and uh, looking forward to chip away at things.
2: And by the way, double bottom line means profit with a purpose to all. If you don't know, it's uh, one of the key principles that we have at at A.I. and Ventures is making sure we are achieving profit, but with the purpose behind it.
0: So one of my core values and sherms, too, is uh, lifting as we climb. And one thing that all three of you have in common is the mentorship of Bradley Scout. Um, I had a chance to ironically meet him here at Annapolis probably like five years ago. And he's really uh, making strides in the venture capital community. And so, Sam, I would love for you to talk to us, Sherman, as well, about what does it mean to also have a mentor um, as you navigate this VC space?
1: Oh, I mean, it's 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 tremendously valuable having someone who not only has. Gone through the rigors of building a track record and building, you know, what's a very robust operational vehicle that withstands withstands really challenging institutional diligence, right? Like those are that's not an easy thing to do. It's really not an easy thing to do, right? And and so I think Brad's paved the way for that, and especially a lot in the in the veteran ecosystem uh, and largely the service academy ecosystem, uh, and. I just, I also, I learn a lot from his intuition, you know, being being able to just watch his decisions. Absolutely, you know, it's like I, you know, I have the, I have the benefit of basically being able to, to watch the inputs and outputs of like a masterfully trained machine learning model as an as an investment model, right? And so it's like, you know, the decisions Brad can make on spaces and on check sizes just based on intuition, and me might, I might arrive there analytically, and it's like, I mean, the guy's almost always on target. And you yeah. know, I'm always like, yeah. man, this guy's really thinking. <laughs> like he's got yeah, something. You got steps ahead of the game.
0: And I apologize. <laughs> I called him Bradley. Scout meant Bradley Harrison. Uh, I know yeah, he yeah, named he the firm it. after his daughter. Uh, Scout.
2: Yeah, I and I'll say, um, I think Sam articulated so well. Um, it's like the best machine learning learning model ever, right? Because he has just so much more data than we do. Yeah. I mean, he was hell. He was in venture. He was taking classes on venture when I was a freaking youngster at the Naval Academy you know uh so I had such a long way to go uh and, and so he has just so much knowledge that um it's just uh really incredible to have someone with that level of experience to guide us along you know with Sam as he's incubating companies and then with me um and Emily yeah. as far as building stuff, AI adventures. ventures yeah
0: So as we wrap up here, I do have one more question and I'm going to let Sherm close us out. Cool. Obviously falling under scout ventures, right? Scout has its own uh, investment thesis. As you grow and become into your own as a venture capitalist, right? How are you going about building your own personal thesis of what you look for in founders?
1: Yeah, this, this, this is a great question. Um, So, couple couple things I, I think I look for in founders uh, you know one I look for for people who have a track record of thinking in a differentiated way right so I think one of my favorite examples that I give is uh, Grant Demery, CEO of one brief you know really successful WpMC portfolio company you know that guy's thinking very differently on on the even on as, as like a landmark example you him as a a new cadet finishing land nav really fast and then going and getting donuts or as like that guy was thinking outside the box, and, you know, they slammed him for that, but he's thinking outside the box. And it's like that level of conviction, being able to think and think differently and act with conviction and execute with conviction. Like that's really meaningful. Uh, I think, you know, track record, obviously, um, people who, people who have some competitive advantage in a space in, in a space, Right they have some proven differentiation for value creation in a particular space. That's a, that's a huge advantage. And then I would say, I would say lastly, I think there's, there's a really important element of, of business intuition and that's kind of combined with the ability to have vision and be persistent against it. Right. These like really great entrepreneurs and leaders, they like, they understand when they need to sell. They understand how to craft a vision. They understand kind of always what they need to do and they're just persistent about it. And they just, they just attack, they attack that vision. Um, so that's, that's, that's kind of the last bit to wrap there. Love yeah.
2: Well, I mean, everyone, thank you for attending this session, uh, our latest podcast with uh, Sam Ellis, now at uh, Scout Ventures and leading the incubation efforts at Scout Ventures. Prior to that, he was a uh, Dutchie. Well, he had done quite a few things, but Dutchie, Tim Robotics. He spent some time at 0.72 for a sec. Um, also um, an Army military intelligence officer. Um, Emily and I are happy to have you. Iron Mike, always thank you for, for helping host this. Um, and we'll be getting back at you guys with our next episode. Thank you.
1: Thank you, guys. It's been a blast.